Good afternoon, and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU News Director Will Murphy. The regular host of this program, Bob Zaltzberg, is in Florida right now. He picked a good day to be in Florida and away from the Hoosier <laughs> State. He's, uh, as I understand it, leading a uh, panel at the Pointer Institute, which is an institute dedicated to quality journalism. And so we hope he's enjoying his time there. And also Mary Catherine Carmichael, who is usually here, is uh, called away from the microphone uh, due to a family emergency. And our thoughts are with her this afternoon. We have uh, Adam Ragusia, the assistant news director, filling in for Mary Catherine. Nice to have you here, Adam. And our guest for the program for the entire uh, hour here on Noon Edition this afternoon is Faisal Istrabadi, who uh, this past semester has been teaching in the IU School of Law in Bloomington. He is uh, considered one of the primary architects of the uh, Constitution, the legal aspects of the Constitution uh, for the uh, Iraqi government and uh, also served for several years as uh, an ambassador to the United Nations. Welcome this afternoon. Thank you. It's good to be with you. If you have uh, comments or questions for our guest, the uh, number to call in Bloomington is 855-0811. Toll free, you can call 877-285-9348. Or if you'd like to submit your comments or questions via email, the address is uh, noon at indiana.edu. And we should point out, before we go too much further, that uh, not only are you teaching this semester, but you're a, uh, I presume, proud graduate of Indiana University. I am indeed. I have my undergraduate and law degrees from, first law degree from here, yes. Graduated in uh, 86 with a chemistry degree. Now, how do you make the transition from chemistry to law and then to uh, (laughs) constitutional architecture? Uh, Well, uh, I wasn't any good as a chemist. uh, (laughs) So if I was going to eat, uh, I needed to find some other thing to do. Um, I uh, I had a, an outstanding chemistry teacher in high school, who uh, was a, a great teacher, one of the great teachers I've ever had. I can still say that it was Mr. Lumley at Bloomington South, and he made the, the field so interesting that I decided to major in it, even though. In retrospect, I had no particularly discernible talent as a chemist, so I had to find something else to do. <laughs> and you went into law school and have done very well, and you opened a practice in Val- actually in Valparaiso? And, and yeah. Well, I went to a large firm in northwest Indiana at first and then eventually opened up my own practice. That's right. All right. Now, if one reads through your uh, biographical material, uh, one gets the sense that for much of your life, you didn't have uh, – uh, I don't want to make this sound uh, – Wrong, but it, it sounds like you didn't have an active interest in your Iraqi roots. But that seems to have changed over the course of the '90s, in particular. Yeah, I, I think that's probably correct. Um, uh, when my parents left Iraq, um, um, and actually the, the connection to Indiana University is, is very strong. We came to Bloomington in the first place so that my mother could uh, finish her PhD, which she did um, in the late '70s. But uh, was my father, when, when my parents left Iraq, my father sort of closed the door behind him. Uh, they had left before, depending on who had led the last coup d'etat, my parents went back and forth between Iraq and the United States a couple of times, aside from having studied here uh, when they were in, the, in their 20s. Um, so uh, there was not a sense of a return to Iraq. And frankly, the previous regime was so well entrenched, I never actually imagined that it would uh, – that, it, that, uh, that uh, there would ever be the opportunity to return to Iraq. Uh, the first, what, what Americans call the first Gulf War, which of course to the Iraqis is actually the second Gulf War, uh, but in any event, the 1991 war, um, did sort of rekindle a sense of my Iraqiness, which I have to say had been somewhat dormant. I came to the United, I was born in the United States, first of all, but then I came back when I was uh, less than eight years old. I celebrated my eighth birthday in Bloomington, in fact. Um, but, the, but seeing Baghdad being bombed in 1991 clearly rekindled some attachment. And uh, it took a while, uh, but I'd say within about four or five years after that, I began to work in, in opposition uh, slowly. Uh, began work that eventually became opposition uh, politics, I guess. And how do you make that transition? I mean, from from a member of the Indiana Bar to uh, uh a member of the uh, organized resistance or whatever you want to call it to – to uh, uh, Well, I, resistance I think is a bit optimistic. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, the, the French had a resistance. <laughs> I don't think you could quite call what we were doing that. Um, um, 
Well, actually, I didn't make it as a transition because I continued to practice law. I mean, I still had to put food on the table. Um, and um, I, so uh, it was still uh, – I didn't think of it in the disjunctive. I did both. Uh, other things had to go. Uh, I had in 1990 uh, begun uh, graduate studies at the University of Chicago. I had intended to obtain a master's and a PhD while at the same time practicing law. Um, and I made some substantial progress. Obviously, I wasn't going full time. Uh, but I was making some uh, progress on the master's degree. And by the time I became involved in, in opposition politics, I had to choose whether I was going to do that and practice law or get a degree and practice law. And the degree seemed less important at that moment. So that went. Now, uh, when uh, the, the Bush administration launches its uh, invasion into Iraq, you start out as an advocate of that action, correct? I was a vociferous advocate. Um, and I might say, might, might say the only one uh, who was a public advocate uh, in the political organization uh, that I was in, yes. Why were you so isolated in that support? Um, there was um, the, the head of that organization who is the foreign, former foreign minister of Iraq and the regime overthrown by the Ba'athists in 1968, uh, my, my political mentor, um, uh, a man I admire tremendously, uh, Dr. Adnan Pachachi, um, who really all of these uh, opportunities that I've had, whether it was to work on the – if I may correct one thing, I didn't work on the permanent constitution. I worked on the interim constitution. Um, I, I had the opportunity to do that because of Dr. Pachachi. I had uh, – he's the one that nominated me for my ambassadorship. He's the one that uh, – suggested to the foreign minister that I be sent to New York. All of those kinds of opportunities were made for me by, by Dr. Pachachi and I always like to, to acknowledge that fact. Uh, but in any event, um, he did not um, – I think on principle he opposed uh, the war. I, I don't think he's a pacifist particularly but he in any event opposed the war. He did not believe that uh, well, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I guess we, we, he and I never really sat down and had the conversation. Um, but I, I, I suppose he simply opposed the war on principle. Um, others in the organization who were highly placed within the organization as I was on, on the steering committee of the, of, the, of the party, which is the Iraqi Independent Democrats, um, uh, supported in the privacy of their thoughts and in private conversation the idea of the war um, but did not support it publicly because they felt that in that they weren't in Iraq and had no probability of having a bomb fall over their heads, that they had a moral obligation therefore to refrain from making their support public. Um, I supported the war not because uh, I uh, wanted my uh, uh, one of my two countries uh, uh, to be uh, bombed, but because um, I could think of no way that I would see the end of the previous regime in my lifetime. Saddam Hussein's um, uh, 14-year-old grandson, the son of his second son, was being groomed uh, to rule one day and in fact died fighting the Americans with his father and his uncle in Mosul in 2003, I think it was. So, um, uh, so there, there were sort of, I guess, uh, those three camps and, and I, I can tell you, and I don't mean to, to give a monologue on this, but I can tell you that I arranged uh, – um, one of the earlier meetings between uh, representatives of the State Department and, and, and Dr. Pachachi uh, in, uh, in London. And he asked me to, 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 to be in the meeting. Um, uh, and when the State Department officials um, finished their presentation to him, which he did not interrupt with any questions or any comments for 45 minutes, he listened. Um, the very first question he asked was, who's going to provide security 
after the fall of the previous regime and how is it going to be done. So I think uh, he being truly the, the, the only elder statesman we have, uh, this would have been in 2002, uh, he understood the risks and perils um, far better than I did. Was there a, uh, an answer to that question? Uh, you mentioned uh, in a not a satisfactory one. No. <laughs> you mentioned uh, in, in several of these and interviews, certainly not in retrospect. <laughs> you say that uh, um, the State Department was told in no uncertain terms to guard against looting, to guard against um, uh, internal dissent uh, or, or just lawlessness in general, um, and that they disregarded. Have you gotten any kind of response as to why that was not heeded? Well, the State Department, <clears throat> pardon me, wasn't at fault for that. We, we were – what you're referring to, what you're alluding to is something called the Future of Iraq Project, uh, which uh, I uh, was involved in in a number of ways. And I have to say it, it's, it's it, the very first meeting in the Future of Iraq Project that I was involved in was in uh, – and I can no longer remember the day, but it was in April of 2002 um, – uh, for what was called uh, sort of an organizing committee. I've forgotten exactly, advisory committee or organizing committee or something like that. And um, so I was there pretty much at, at the launch of the Future of Iraq project uh, through its, its end. Um, I had naively thought uh, that um, I was advising the government of the United States as an Iraqi American. But I realized in retrospect is that I wasn't advising the government of the United States. I was advising the Department of State. Those are two very different things. Um, and what I wasn't, of course, wouldn't have known and didn't know at the time, uh, although it became pretty obvious rather quickly, was the extent of the internecine uh, fighting between agencies. Um, now, this project went on, uh, as I said, the launch was in April of um, – 2002, the first uh, substantive meeting of one of the working groups occurred in July of that year, um, and I, I was on several of the of the of the working groups. But in any case, um, by the end of January 2003, say six weeks before the launch of military operations in Iraq, uh, the Defense Department had supplanted the. Uh, future of Iraq project and our recommendations were all put on a shelf. Um, but in fact, we had predicted the looting and incidentally, we predicted the looting uh, not because uh, we were prescient or not because we were geniuses um, but because um, that's what happens in war when, a, when one government or one state apparatus uh, is collapsing in a war. Um, and another one has not asserted itself. This happens over and over again. There was looting in Paris between the time that the Germans withdrew in 1944 from Paris and the time that, 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 that Allied troops uh, actually entered the city. Uh, there had been looting in Iraq in 1991 um, as uh, government forces were being bombarded by and, and therefore losing con the ability to control security uh, by the United States and its allies. So uh, again, it's not – I mean if you think about it in, 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 the, in this country, uh, the, the, the riots the, – the Rodney King riots uh, occurred not because there was a total absence of a police power but because that police power failed timely to respond. They were just a little late in responding. Uh, yet you have this massive looting, if you'll recall. I don't remember what year that was. I think it was in the 90s sometime. Um, so again, it did not require um, specialists in conflict um, to, uh, to predict uh, the, the looting. And, and, and we did in fact. The, uh, the Democratic Principles uh, Working Group um, – and I was on, on the drafting committee of, of the report of that uh, organization, of that working group, um, predicted it uh, in, a, in a lengthy article of, who, of which the principal drafter 
of that chapter of the report was a, a woman, a friend and colleague, uh, Randal Rahim, uh, who is the executive director of the Iraq Foundation in Washington. Um, I want to remind our listeners very quickly that uh, we're talking today with Faisal Istrabadi, um, one of the architects of the interim constitution uh, for the government of Iraq and uh, technically still an ambassador to the United Nations, sure. although he did submit his resignation over the summer. It was not accepted. And this uh, term and next term, he's a visiting professor here at the Indiana University uh, School of Law. If you'd like to join the conversation, the number in Bloomington is 855-0811, toll-free 877-285-9348. Or if you'd like to submit a question or comment via email, the address is noon at indiana.edu. Adam? Mr. Strabati, over the course of your teaching over the fall semester, have you found that your initial support in the run-up of, of regime change in the run-up to the war, given that there is such an anti-war sentiment in certain quarters at the university, has resulted in a certain aggression to you on the part of your students? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Uh, not at the uh, – not at the uh, – not amongst my students, not amongst colleagues uh, at the, on the law faculty, uh, not uh, in the administration and I should in fact – I am not only uh, visiting a professor at the law school, uh, but I am also uh, – I have a, an appointment by courtesy at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs where I will be teaching a course next semester. And I also have an adjunct uh, visiting appointment at the Near Eastern Languages and Cultures Department. And I am also at the uh, Center for the Study of Global Change. So in fact, I say all that to – I think adequately disprove the contention that there has been any hostility towards me. Quite the contrary. I think I have been uh, met with open arms by uh, administrators, uh, faculty uh, and students at the university. Um, so no, I haven't uh, – uh, I haven't experienced any hostility. Maybe we'll get some today on the, on the <laughs> phone. But what have they been? What have students been most eager to talk to you about? Well, it's interesting because uh, there are a number of um, um, uh, officers um, at the law school. And so far, I've only taught a course at the law school. There are a number of officers who are students at the law school, and I have of the second and third year law students, I have a fair percentage of them, I think about half or so in, in the class that I taught, which was transitional justice in Iraq. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, some have come to see me um, with uh, sort of personal observations, uh, almost to try to make some sense of um, the high hopes that they had for um, the, 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 the operation in Iraq when they were there. These people have actually served in Iraq, have you know, taken and returned fire in Iraq. Um, and so they want to make sense of the, of the high hopes they had um, with which I can identify. I mean, in, in the, in, uh, I was speaking this morning to, to Dr. Pachichi, in fact, and we were reminiscing about 2003 and how optimistic we were about the future. Um, against the reality of what Iraq has become in 2007, which in any event is, is, believe it or not, a little better than it was in 2006, much better in some sense. Um, so there's been some of that um, and also their comments in class have been interesting uh, because they, they genuinely have a different perspective. Um, even though we're not talking about the war on the first day that I took the podium, I said, look, you know, we're not going to be discussing the, the, the merits of the war in this class. It's not what this class is about. Whether you're for the war, against the war, or didn't know that your country was at war, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and, so, and we haven't. Um, so it's been very interesting and um, also I think that uh, the other students who, who haven't had uh, that experience of serving in Iraq, the civilian students, let's say. I mean the, these students by the way are, are the, the, the officers. Of course, they're obviously going to end up being in the, in the Judge Advocate General's course and they will be facing these kinds of issues the rest of their careers because it's always the 
the army officers who are the first ones who think about – the army officer lawyers who are the first ones who have to think about issues of transitional justice and accountability and so on. So that's been interesting to see their perspectives on that. And I have to say that uh, we would have been missing an important substantive contribution if those people had not been in the class. That's been interesting. The other students who have not had that experience have just been remarkable. I, I have to say, as, as you pointed out, I, I was a graduate of – I am a graduate of this law school. Uh, the quality of the students there now is leaps and bounds above what it was when – when uh, when I you know was allowed to squeak in to uh, <laughs> an incoming class and then squeak out again in a graduating class, they're remarkable and uh, uh, um, uh, and uh, it really has been uh, I've never taught before, uh, but I, I it has been a remarkable experience for me. We uh, I want to come back to that uh, that experience before the end of the program, but uh, we do have a couple of callers on the line who've been waiting patiently, and so. Let's give them uh, their time to ask questions. And uh, first, we have Andy on the line. Andy? Hi. I hope everyone is doing well today. Yes, thank you for waiting. And uh, my question, uh, really, uh, you alluded to uh, a comment that, that things in, in uh, the last year have gotten uh, considerably better. And, and I guess my, my question is this. With all of the miscalculations that the, uh, uh, the current uh, – uh, American government has uh, has done and uh, mistakes made both militarily and and in the uh, in the realms of the of the Iraqi government as well. Um, do you see us turning a corner? Is are we starting at least on, on somewhat of a of a right track? I mean, uh, I'd like to know your observations on that. Uh, well, thank you very much for uh, the question. It's uh, it's hard to know. Um, we're on a better track than we have been on. Uh, I was on the first commercial airliner that touched down in Baghdad International Airport after the bombing of the Samarra Shrine in February of 2006. And I was in Baghdad for not quite two weeks uh, at that, in, in February and March of 2006. Um, the situation at that time deteriorated palpably hour by hour, if not minute by minute. And really um, something, if not civil war, and there's technical reasons that uh, scholars might argue whether it was or wasn't a civil war, and I have my own view on that, uh, clearly began at that time, whatever it was. Um, and by the end of that summer of 2006, you started finding 120, 150 bodies of civilians tortured to death. Um, Something had to give and the surge was the American response. What I would say is that a number of things are happening. One is that the surge did have a salutary effect, which tells me that had the United States committed a larger force uh, to Iraq, the result might have been different. Had it not dissolved the Iraqi army, it might have been different. Um, when I supported this, I had anticipated that there would be similar numbers, a half million or so, sent to liberate Iraq from uh, the previous regime that was sent in 1990 and 91 to liberate Kuwait from Iraq's invasion. I could not have imagined that you would try to do it with a small force, to do it, as Thomas Friedman says, on the cheap. <laughs> um, on the other hand... So, so, that's, so that much can be said. On the other hand, there are also negative reasons why the violence is down. You no longer have this. You may still have 10, 15, 20 bodies a day turning up, but not 120. There are some negative reasons why the violence is down in Iraq. Part of it is that the ethnic cleansing in the city has more or less occurred. Uh, now, there's some evidence that in small numbers, people are starting to go back to the neighborhoods, which are 
Iraqi society is very highly intermixed. Anybody that tells you you can draw lines and say, here's where all the Shia are, here's where all the Sunnah are, here's where all the Kurds are, doesn't know Iraq. Um, so there are both positive and negative indications. The problem is that the Iraqi political class seems to be stuck in neutral. Um, the American forces... Uh, aren't going to maintain these numbers in Iraq for very much longer, in my judgment. I think that's obvious. Um, so the solution, once you have things sufficiently calmed down, the solutions to our problems have to be, in great part, uh, political, between the uh, uh, political elite of the country. And what is missing and one of my frustrations over the last year and a half or so uh, has been that um, each of the parties is stuck making the same uh, sort of maximalist demands that they were making three years ago. And, and we've had no political progress. So the real solution at, from this point is to try to create a political solution and to try to sort of have a political surge, if you will, um, to create a political middle ground. Um, and uh, then there will still be those that you have to deal with militarily, like al-Qaeda and whatever radical supporters of the previous regime who want to go back to running Iraq as they did from 68 to 2003. Um, and that, that you can then deal with once you've got them isolated. Uh, but that's how I see it. All right. Thank you very much for that call, Andy. Uh, your response has opened any number of threads that we could pursue, but we do have another caller on the line, and I want to hear from Jan. Jan? Uh, yes, hi. I, I didn't hear exactly why uh, you used to support the war, but you don't any longer. And I wondered if you thought Bush should be impeached. Uh, well, don't uh, assume. Uh, I, I didn't say I don't support the war any longer. In fact, it would be an absolute disaster for the United States precipitously to withdraw from Iraq. Um, what I am disappointed in is the absolute incompetence of the American administration in failing to understand the project that it was. I'm not uh, – uh, I'm furious about this, um, in fact, uh, at the absolute incompetence of the American administration in failing to understand the magnitude of the task that was at hand both in terms of the opportunity that it created, but as well in terms of the risks that were inherent in the project. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, uh, I, uh, I, I, you didn't hear me say that I don't support the war because I didn't say that. Or you didn't hear me say why I don't support the war because I didn't say that. Um, the United States. I guess of, someone else said you used to support the war, but you no longer do. Well, that I don't, I, I, I don't know. But in any case, I didn't say that. Um, um, and, I, and, I'm, and I, I, I'm very grateful to you for giving me the chance to, to clarify. What happened in Iraq is that the United States dismantled an existing state. And, um, and this, of course, is in part the, the fault of the vice regency of, of, of Ambassador Bremer in Iraq, uh, although he certainly doesn't bear ultimate responsibility. Ultimately, the buck stops with the president. Uh, the dismantling of the state of Iraq and for absolutely no reason and an attempt to put it back together. Well, guess what? It takes – it's much easier to take things apart than it is to put them back together. And we have not yet reached the point where the institutions that Iraqis need to fend for themselves exist such that the United States can withdraw. It's, it's absolutely essential uh, in my judgment for – uh, the United States to remain in Iraq until Iraqis are able to uh, fulfill the job of the United States military forces. In particular, we're talking about the military forces, which will take time. You cannot build a military force overnight. All righty. Thank you very much for that call, Jen. I appreciate that. Uh, we're about uh, 24 minutes away from the uh, top of the hour. Will Murphy on Noon Edition along with uh, Adam Ragusea, my co-host. And our guest is Faisal Istrabadi, and we're talking about the uh, situation in Iraq. We will come back to your questions, comments, and phone calls in just a moment. The phone number, if you'd like to speak with uh, 
Ambassador Istrabadi is 855-0811. I suppose I ought to call you Professor Istrabadi. Well, you have many portfolios. Friends, you can call me Excellency. <laughs> <laughs> the toll-free number outside Bloomington is 877-285-9348. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info The Stuff a Bus will be parked outside Wonderlab today to receive donations of new toys and clothes for local families in need. There's a new public sculpture on Terre Haute's Arts Corridor. The fest gets a start at 4 p.m. with a dedication of the sculpture Spirit of Space by Bob Emser, and that's at the Swope Art Museum, 25 South 7th Street in Terre Haute. Leadership, Ethics, and Social Action Presentations, a celebration of the Capstone Project, takes place at 5 at Bloomington City Hall in Columbus. Dave Rudolph's Christmas show offers music, mirth, and mayhem with Rudolph at the First Fridays for Families show at 6 o'clock. And in Kokomo, it's Christmas at the Cyberling, dressed for the season. More about these and many other items on our website at wfiu.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Will Murphy, filling in for uh, Bob Zaltzberg this afternoon. And the co-host this afternoon, Adam Ragusi, the assistant news director at WFIU, filling in for Mary Catherine Carmichael. And our guest this afternoon is Faisal Istrabadi, who has uh, a long and distinguished career and uh, what one might call a very various and uh, interesting portfolio. He is, technically speaking, uh, an ambassador from Iraq to the United Nations, although he submitted his resignation last summer. Uh, it was declined and so he's still with that portfolio. He's been visiting the IU Bloomington ca- uh, campus this term and will again next term uh, as a visiting professor both in uh, the law school and with the School of Public and Environmental Affairs and also you said with uh, Near Eastern Languages and Culture? That's right. Right. So uh, we can cover any range of issues that you'd like to address uh, as he's our guest this afternoon. If you have a comment or question, the number is 855-0811 in Bloomington, toll-free 877-285-9348. And the uh, email address is noon at indiana.edu. We'll come back uh, briefly to uh, Jan's second question for you, which was, do you think President Bush should be impeached for his policy in Iraq? Well, I mean, if I suppose the first answer I can give you is I don't give free legal advice. But um, uh, the, the, the fact is the standard for impeachment is uh, pretty high. It's high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, it isn't uh, failure. Um, otherwise, out of the 42, you would have impeached you know, several of them. Um, and so it seems to me that in the absence of evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, there's no basis for, for, for impeaching the president. All righty. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, the current situation. I mean you referenced uh, the surge and how that uh, had had something of a positive effect and how what's uh, needed now is something of a political surge. You don't seem to be a big supporter of the uh, al-Maliki administration. Well, it's – I mean it's – I mean it's – as they say in the movie The Godfather, it's not personal. I mean it's uh, – that it's because it's, it seems to be incompetent. Um, uh, and it isn't really a government. I mean uh, the Iraqi government is two or three ministers short of having no um, quorum at in cabinet meetings. Uh, a 15 ministers resigned uh, six months ago or so and only two or three have been replaced. I mean and, and you're talking about uh, – and, and that only recently. And you're talking about important service ministries like the health ministry. Um, uh, so it, it just is – seems to be stuck in neutral. 
And, you know, the truth is that the, the prime ministership fell into Mr. al-Maliki's lap. I know him. He's a, you know, uh, nice fellow. Uh, but I don't suppose it ever dawned on him that he'd one day be prime minister of Iraq. Um, it just so happened that uh, the previous uh, prime minister, the head of his party, the then head of his party, uh, Ibrahim Jafari, was nobody wanted him to be reappointed as prime minister anymore. And there was some insistence that it be somebody else from this party. They, for whatever reason, the number two man in the party didn't get it and, and, and Mr. Maliki got it, uh, who was the number three or number four man in the party. Uh, and it just it, – it, um, it doesn't govern as a cohesive government and in part it's because of a deal brokered by Ambassador Khalil Zad at the time, the US ambassador in Baghdad, uh, in which he wanted all the parties represented in the, in the cabinet. Fine. Uh, I mean that in principle, I, I wouldn't have opposed that. Uh, but the deal as it was brokered did not leave Mr. al-Maliki in charge of the government. Rather, the same deal that made him prime minister made somebody the minister of youth and sports. And so he can't hold that minister accountable for his conduct or, or, or misconduct or, or uh, whatever because the same deal that made him prime minister made every other member of a cab, the cabinet a member of the cabinet. He can't fire anybody. Um, and that just, I mean, is is not a way to run a government when bombs are going off in your capital. And everybody's paralyzed by that. That is to say, yes. if one of them's out, they're all out. Well, I mean, in, in theory, and the fact is, you can't get them out. And if they do get out, it apparently turns out to be very difficult to appoint replacements. All right, we have uh, three callers uh, on the line, uh, and we thank them for their patience. Let's go first to Joe. Hello? Joe, are you with us? Yeah, hi. Um, um, The uh, ambassador made a uh, reference to building up the uh, Iraqi army, but in view of the uh, description of the civil government uh, that he's just given, uh, really, wouldn't that move us uh, more toward dictatorship, and wouldn't it be better uh, to... uh, uh, for, uh, to follow the uh, uh, the Biden plan that was uh, approved by a vote of 75, I believe, to 25 in the Senate, uh, to go ahead with uh, uh, devolving power uh, upon each of the regions, which I think can be done under the present Constitution. Uh, any comment, please? Thank you. Yes, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because the the principal advocate of this uh, plan is Joe Biden and the United States Senate. It drew an immediate and almost universal condemnation from the Iraqi political class. Now, the premise of Joe Biden, who in my judgment, with all respect to Senator Biden, doesn't understand Iraq at all. The premise of Joe Biden is that Well, there are three main groups in Iraq and there were three main groups in Yugoslavia in the 90s and the three main groups in Yugoslavia were fighting each other uh, because each one of them wanted to separate out from Yugoslavia and when we separated them, there was peace. So it must be that the three groups in Iraq are fighting each other so that they can be separated and we'll get peace if we but separate them. I defy Joe Biden. I defy Leslie Gelb, I defy Peter Galbraith to identify for me a group in Iraq which is now fighting to divide Iraq. I defy them to identify the group for me that is fighting in Iraq now to create federal uh, institutions. There isn't one. The fight is about whether or not to have federal institutions and the insurgency is saying no. So if you divide the country, whether soft partition or hard partition, you don't solve the problems. You exacerbate the problems. You prove to the insurgents that the American enterprise in Iraq has been as they quote-unquote know it to have been all along to divide the country. This kind of talk in my judgment contributes to violence in Iraq. Now, what has to happen – in my judgment, is that this notion, the, the, the solution in, in my judgment for Iraq's problems is not in further dividing 
the country when you have, as I said, an active insurgency uh, that is fighting against it. And incidentally, the polls indicate that um, the polls of Iraqis indicate that uh, uh, 70 percent or more of non-Kurdish Iraqis do not want a federal structure. I understand what the permanent constitution says uh, and I can address that issue. But uh, the point is that um, there is a sense on the part of a lot of Iraqis that federalism is being rammed down their throats uh, or indeed confederalism. And the problem with the Biden plan is that it, it, it looks at the Swiss model. It creates a confederal structure and the old Swiss model. The difficulty with Biden is that our neighbors aren't, you know, uh, Austria and Germany and France and Italy. We need stronger state institutions um, as a bulwark against drawing our neighbors into regional wars. And there is no greater proof of that fact than the fact that in the last six weeks, Turkey has repeatedly threatened to invade Iraq because there is not an adequate central government or, or federal government in Baghdad. The solution to our problem, and I might add, you haven't heard Senator Biden pushing his plan ever since Turkey started rattling the sabers. The solution to Iraq's problems is, a, in my judgment, a very simple one, and that's an asymmetric federation. Uh, clearly, the Kurds, well over 90 percent of the Kurds, want federalism if they can't have independence. Um, the leadership doesn't want independence for a variety of reasons. Um, the Kurdish leadership, I mean. So clearly, you, you cannot impose upon the Kurds of Iraq a centralized state again. It didn't work in the past. It won't work in the future. They're entitled to a federal uh, structure. That doesn't mean that the rest of Iraq has to be governed uh, in a symmetrical federal structure. The United States is not the only model out there or Germany are not the only models. There's Spain, for instance, in which parts of Spain are ruled directly by Madrid and other parts have what in any other country other than Spain, where federalism is a dirty word, would be called federal regions. Um, and that's an asymmetric uh, uh, governmental structure, in fact, an asymmetric federal structure, um, which we can emulate in Iraq, which I think is a solution. It's exactly the anti-Biden plan. All right. Thank you for that. Well, we're going to hand things to Adam in just a minute, but I want to get to the next caller because we've got only 10 more minutes and we have we have uh, one more caller, excuse me, uh, and that is Curtis. Go ahead, Curtis. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to ask a quick question here. Would you consider it true to say that culturally the U.S. does not understand the structure of Iraq, the cultural structure, the tribal institutions and things of that nature? And secondly, what would you consider to be the most prominent features of that cultural structure that are causing problems between the U.S. and Iraq. Thank you. Thank you, Curtis. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I'm not sure um, what it is. I mean, I, I think that the history of the American uh, intervention in Iraq in the last uh, four years, almost five now, um, demonstrates a, a complete lack of knowledge about Iraq at all. I think that it was approached ideologically rather than factually. Um, the Iraqis should, by God, treat us like um, liberators no matter what we do. Um, we ought to win their hearts and minds even when we're leveling cities like Fallujah and Ramadi and other places uh, because we're good guys. Um, so I, I'm not sure that there's anything particularly exceptional about Iraq. Um, uh, I think that when a liberation of Iraq turned immediately into an occupation because we got instead of a sovereign Iraqi government, we got uh, Ambassador Bremer running the place as a viceroy, I think that would be resisted anywhere. The reason it wasn't resisted in Germany um, and Japan is because those were defeated countries and because there was an adequate American force in both those countries, well, an adequate allied force in the case of Germany, um, such that the mayor of every town and village and city in, in Germany was an American colonel or an American major. You didn't have that in Iraq. It was going to be done quickly and efficiently and, uh, you know, faster, cheaper, better. Um, 
So again, I don't think there's anything particularly exceptional about the uh, Iraqi experience. Um, keep in mind that the history of American involvement in Iraq dates back certainly to before 19, uh, 2003. Um, and, and I have to take you back to uh, 1991 when the first president, George Bush, exhorted the people of Iraq to rebel to overthrow Saddam Hussein. They did. 14 out of Iraq's 18 provinces was under rebel, uh, uh, were under rebel control. And then President Bush, uh, this is George Herbert Walker Bush, um, allowed Saddam Hussein to use his uh, helicopter gunships uh, to massacre hundreds of thousands of rebels and put them down. Iraqis haven't forgotten that. Americans have because, you know, we're on to the next Britney Spears story, it seems, in this country. But Iraqis haven't forgotten that betrayal. And that made it even more incumbent upon the administration to understand what it was dealing with in 2003 and to be even better prepared, not less prepared. And I'm sorry there was a second question, but I don't remember what it was. Uh, well, I'd like to go back actually to what the, something brought up by the previous caller who invoked the name of Biden and therefore invoked the U.S. presidential uh, race. And my uh, wrath too. And your wrath indeed. Um, has any productive discourse do you feel arisen from the U.S. presidential race at this point on, on Iraq? Not much. Um, when things looked like they were going really badly, um, the uh, – you know, the the Democrats um, were you know get them get them home now. Um, when things began to look like oh dear, the president might have been right in sending uh, some additional troops. Uh, now the the jargon has been ramped down, so it's all poll driven rather than policy driven. Um, and you know, I can obviously you know the Republican Party from this perspective is by and large, with some notable exceptions, including the senator from Indiana, Senator Luger, uh, and others, Senator Hagel, has been moribund. There's been no oversight in the time that the Republican Party uh, ran Congress and, and so on. So no, I think that uh, uh, I've not heard a principled discourse. Um, I've not heard um, a discussion of uh, American long-term public interest uh, – sorry, policy interest in this vital region of the world and it will continue to be well into this century. Um, and it's all driven by polls. If the polls say the American public think that uh, this war is lost, the Democrats are saying we need to get out and the Republicans are going to resist that. Um, if the polls show that, that the American public might view this with some relative success, then, then the critique goes down. But there's no principled discussion going on. We have uh, time for a quick question from another caller here with about six minutes left in the program, and we have Beth on the line. Yes, good afternoon. I'm very pleased to be able to hear your program today. And I have a question. Um, I'm part of a, a small group of women from Bloomington, Columbus, and Nashville or Brown County who are studying the Middle East um, on our own with books. And I wondered, are there any courses being offered by the guest um, to the public or to adult learning uh, center? Is there any adult learning center course being taught by your guest for this coming semester or even on a short term? I think it would really be edifying to be able to um, read and hear uh, comments on an on a ongoing basis for a period of time. And right. I would like an answer off the air. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Can you, if you're not teaching this, can you recommend uh, resources well, where folks might go? Well, I, I do talk. Uh, I have spoken around Bloomington and other places, and I think in June I'm going to be in some. Uh, I wish I could remember what it was called, but it's some sort of uh, uh, courses that are offered. I think at the Meadowood Retirement. But I'm always very happy to speak to uh, to to uh, to communities. Uh, certainly, when I was uh, serving as an ambassador, regarded it as a part of my. Uh, duties uh, to do that and have spoken to things like Gold Star Mothers and so on. I'm always happy to do that. Uh, I would certainly be happy to do it in the community in which I'm living now. All right. We have about uh, four minutes left. I wanted to get to this question of democratic structures since that's something we've visited frequently during this hour and it's at least uh, nominally part of the justification for American presence in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, that Once we WMDs to... weren't found at least. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that, the rationalization was something of a moving target, literally and figuratively, but... Um, it always is. It was in 1991 as well, you may recall. 
So, so my question, as someone who is involved in, in legal structures, in structures of democracy, is there much hope for the ambition that the Bush administration offers that democracy and a constitution in Iraq will have a wider regional um, effect? Well, those are two different things. Democracy and a constitution are two very different things. And the, the, one of the problems uh, in the approach, not only of the Bush administration, but actually of the international community, and this is a critique I've made at the United Nations because it's the, the, the sort of uh, nation-building professional cadre out there, which you know is housed in a number, a number of NGOs and places like the UNDP and other places, USIP and other places. They assume that drafting a constitution, you know, now the work of democratization is done. And of course, that's nonsense. Um, uh, but, but the nature of the institutions turns out to be really, really important. Uh, scholars have pointed out, for instance, that if you have one particular form of um, of um, of uh, institutions, for instance, uh, a, a particular kind of election system, you actually drive a country towards greater corruption. Even though you have the elections and so on, but if you but the, the literature, and I know it's controversial, but there is some literature in, in, the, in the legal literature, in particular, and in, in, in political science literature, that if you have uh, you know closed list party uh, uh, system, uh, uh, the proportional representation system with a strong executive, you actually drive towards corruption. So it turns out it's really important what kind of institutions you make, and the mere existence of institutions as such, plus elections, isn't enough to get you good governance. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think that's been – that was adequately understood um, in the attempt to recreate the state of Iraq. Uh, it, it, it's very much an open question. And right now, when uh, the average Baghdadi parent is more concerned about uh, whether when he sends his children to a school, whether they will come back alive that evening or whether he or she will come back alive that evening, uh, it's pretty hard to get them uh, to talk – uh, about an abstraction called democracy. All right. We have so many questions that we've left on the table. We could do this for another hour, I think, but our hour's up. I'd like to thank our guests very much for uh, joining us this afternoon. Faisal Istrabadi, thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed thank it. You, I've uh, been filling in this afternoon for Bob Zaltzberg. He will be back next week. Uh, Adam Ragusia filling in for Mary Catherine Carmichael. She may or may not be back next week. And again, our thoughts are with her this afternoon. On behalf of producer... Catherine Hageman and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.